gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller, and... We are excited to have the hosts of Kaisis podcast on today, and you'll know one of them, Pastor Todd Bordeaux, as he's been a guest a few times before, and Osbaldo Valdez. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I think this is already one of my favorites, and not no exaggeration there. I This is a very, very good podcast. I highly highly recommend it. You know, there's some podcasts that I listen to that, uh, you know, I'll look through every once in a while. Is there an episode that interests me? But then there's a podcast that you you kind of wait for the next new episode to come out. That's where I'm at with your new podcast. Why don't you guys tell us a little bit about the podcast, but even about yourselves. I know most people are familiar with Todd and Osbottle, you can share a little bit about yourself, about the podcast, what the name means. Yeah, since I think most of your listeners know me, Osvaldo, why don't you go? Yeah, my name is Osvaldo Valdez, and I am a pastoral intern at Cornerstone um, OPC. I'm also a student at Houston Baptist University, where I'm actually working on a Master's of Divinity. And I'm almost done. I only have one more, two more semesters, uh, no, actually three more semesters left. So I'm really, really excited to get that over with. So yeah, we, we started this podcast with the with uh, kind of the broadest subject of uh, the kingdom of God, since it, it allows for some sort of like flexibility and space to talk about um, many, many things. Our, our name, Kais, is actually made up. We were kind of working through different titles and names, and I kind of wanted something fun, not something boring, because I, I know many podcasts that kind of have a, a boring name. But the the name Kais comes from two Greek words, kaine kitesis, which mean new creation. So if you, you take the first three letters of, of kaine and the last three letters of kitesis, you get kaisis. So so there it is. So that's, that's a little bit about me and a little bit about the podcast. 
You want to want to add anything to that, Pastor Todd? Yeah, I was going to say, remember when we were going through all the different names, but every time we picked a name, we found that somebody had used it for a podcast already. <laughs> yeah, so I felt like, yeah, we wanted to be a little bit more original than that. So we had to make up words to be able to find something where people could look us up and not already find someone else having used it. Exactly. Well, you know what? That's I always tell people, the first rule of podcasting, don't pick a podcast name that already exists. And I've told people that before, and they pick a name, and there's three you know, with that name. So having something unique is is great. So we did it for, I mean, a number of reasons. One, we wanted a sort of a ministry of our church because so many people listen to podcasts now and take what we're doing at Cornerstone and make it for a more broader audience. And it also lets people know if they're in the Houston area, what we believe, how how we teach. Um, and Oswaldo and I, you know, he's been our intern. And, you know, for 21 years old, this guy is very mature and knowledgeable for his age. And I sort of have a personal reason because next May, he is going to be available for to be a pastor. And so I'd like people to know, of course, he wants to work more in the bilingual uh, in a bilingual ministry. But now this is not why Osbaldo is doing it. I didn't tell him this, but I'm just, hey, I'm just finding that out now. So I know. I, I would like people to know there's a really good young man ready to do ministry. I think we both bring a different perspective, though, because he's young, ideal, ready to go. Life sort of beat the crap out of me. I, I'm just getting by. You know, I tell my wife, if we can get through the day and feel good and end the day with comedians and cars getting coffee, the show we watch before bed, uh, we're, do- we're good. We're happy. We're It's enough. So you have... You know, and then, of course, you know, with my voice after my surgery, I struggle to speak in that way. So you got Osbaldo with this booming voice and ready to go. He's learning all these things. I think it's a good mix with sort of where I'm at and my experience and where Osbaldo's at. And, you know, I respect him a lot. And I like to hear what he has to say. We certainly share same perspectives on these theological matters. So I thought it would just be a great mix to, uh, to do a podcast together. So far, it's turned out pretty well. Yeah, and, and, and it's pretty cool because a lot of the subjects that we talk about, we, we, we can relate them to kind of like personal personal experiences. And sometimes people um, like never thought that, like, I mean, those things like could ever be related to the kingdom of God. I mean, like just in our latest episode, we talked about personal convictions and we all, we, we shared a little bit of our of our stories of, you know, horror stories of, you know, we, we have our own little personal conviction here and someone else thinks it's a sin. I mean, especially in just that one subject alone, people never, never think that's ever related to the kingdom. of. So we kind of do that with, with every subject that we, that we take, you know, we want to relate our personal experiences and kind of contextualize them where we are as Christians, which is we are in the inaugurated kingdom of God. So So what is the kingdom of God? And that's kind of an open-ended question, but. Yeah, we base the podcast on this understanding of the kingdom of God, the kingdom Christ came to inaugurate. You know, our first episode, we, we made the point that if the church can't agree on such a basic question of what is the kingdom of God, how is the church going to work together to administer or expand or grow or however you want to say it, build the kingdom of God, if we don't even know what it is? And so we started off by making the point that in scripture, the kingdom of God is the new creation. That is the kingdom that Christ came to inaugurate. And so heaven the new heavens and earth intrudes into our day every time a person is brought to Christ. He's added to the kingdom of God. So wherever you have God reigning by his Holy Spirit in the hearts of people, you have the kingdom of God. And it's the kingdom of heaven. That's why those terms are used interchangeably, interchangeably in the gospel. 
And so anything we, anytime we talk about building the kingdom or God's kingdom on the earth, biblically, we need to be talking about the new creation, that which will last beyond this old world. And that's, that should be a foundation of where we start when we explain what is the kingdom of God, and specifically the kingdom that Christ came to inaugurate through his own death and resurrection. Maybe Osvaldo wants to add to that. Yeah, and as you mentioned, I mean, part of that definition and entails like a clarification between um, the kingdom inaugurated and the kingdom consummated. Because like, like, once again, that basic clarification that the new creation has been inaugurated through Christ um, and is being expanded through the gospel and God's spirit um, gives us parameters and um, a framework by which we can interact with, you know, with culture. And, 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 and like, like Pastor Todd said, um, and build upon the church and, keep, and continue working. So, yeah, I just wanted to add to that clarification. I've been thinking so much in the last year how much our view of the kingdom influences a lot of the way we approach many practical things, even your recent episode on the personal convictions. But there's so many things, even in our circles, um, that that some of our foundational disagreements um, can stem from different views on the kingdom. This is why your podcast is important. And I think you're right that a lot of people haven't really maybe thought through these things well. So one of the things you say on the podcast is that we live by a heavenly ethic. What do you mean by heavenly ethic? This is sort of expanding on what we just said, that the kingdom that Christ came to inaugurate through his own death and resurrection is a spiritual kingdom. And therefore, the ethic of the kingdom is the ethic of heaven. In other words, heaven has already begun in the church. It's begun in God's people. So we treat each other in, in, in the way that uh, we will treat each other in heaven. Um, love is the basic of that ethic. Love lasts forever. And notice how the cross is often what the New Testament points to is our definition of love. Love one another as I have loved you. And so we're a little bit critical that we understand what they're trying to do with the idea that um, there are, are three uses of the law. And the third use of the law is the law is a guide to how we are to live. But that term law is never really defined. In a, and of course, we don't always even agree what laws from the Old Testament are we to live by? What, what, what law is that? And it's not even the moral law in general, because in the New Testament, there's a higher ethic. The moral law in general that even unbelievers have on their hearts does not tell us to love like Christ loved. There would be no concept of that. There would be no concept of the cross. There would be no concept of loving your enemy the way Christ did. And so, you know, and in Matthew 6, of course, Jesus is comparing the old covenant law with the heavenly ethic that righteousness flows from our hearts. It's, it's a new desire. And so the heavenly ethic means that the ethics of the new covenant are a heightened ethic from the old covenant, which were mostly focused on outward regulation. But we don't focus in the new covenant on outward regulation. We, we know that God changes our minds and our hearts, our love. He works on so we're not filled with lust. We're not driven by hate. It's a heavenly ethic that does not have that old covenant um, earthly administration of how the outward acts are regulated. And so when, when uh, Jesus teaches us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's it like in heaven? Well, you have the saints of those who have gone before us who are praising God 
who are um, filled with love. And, and so that heavenly ethic is, is what we're praying for on the earth, which can only come through uh, the gospel and people becoming part of the new creation filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the heavenly ethic is a way to summarize the new covenant ethic. And I think it's a little more faithful to the Bible than simply saying it's another, um, it's simply the law in general. I think it's more helpful and I think it's more um, faithful to the new covenant to speak of our ethics now in the new covenant as a heavenly ethic. Yeah, and I wanted to add to that saying that it's interesting that we call it a heavenly ethic because once again, we we contextualize the Christian life for the Christian ethic, not in terms of just like being moral and good people. Once again, we try to contextualize it within uh, within its place in redemptive history. And like Pastor Josh said, the, the heavenly ethic is us living out the promised restoration. And it's interesting to to frame it like that because we realize that the Christian life is not like an escape from from the created order, an escape from, you know, from what from whatever is material. No, that's that's actually a very Gnostic way of thinking. That's not that's not the Christian life, that's not the Christian ethic. Instead, uh, once again, the Christian ethic is to live out the restoration that was promised, the restoration of the created order. So it's cool because when we call it uh, the heavenly ethic and the, the fact that we're living that heavenly ethic on earth, in many ways, we are displaying this, this um, eschatological idea that heaven has come down. Once again, we're not trying to escape earth as Christians. No, we are living out the promised restoration of the created order and, and, and the heavenly ethic has a, has a huge part of that, you know, and it's, I, I like to think it like that, that us living the heavenly ethic in, in one way is us having that taste of heaven come down to earth. Yeah, I often say that every local church that believes the gospel where you have true believers are local outposts of heaven that are already available for fallen man to come and see and experience and hear. So on one of your recent episodes um, on worship, uh, you were a bit critical of regulative principle. Could you elaborate a little bit and explain for them what, what that is? Yeah, I'm trying my best to get myself charged and thrown out. No, I'm kidding. Um, what I'm trying to show is that there's a weakness in regarding the regulative principle that the Reformed um, teach, which is that in worship, we can only do what God commands and frame that, which I believe, by the way, I believe there is a regulative principle to worship. I don't believe we're guided by the same um, laws and rules as we would in the rest of life. There is something unique about our gathering that are that's true in the old and new covenant. But what we do, and this goes back to what we've been saying, first and foremost, is guided by the gospel and that we are in the presence of God now in heaven. And so what regulates our worship is this belief that through Christ, we are already in heaven. And and the concern I have with the way the Reformed often state the regulative principle, it it becomes very, it can become very elitist. Um, it, it limits the application of true worship to a very small amount of Christians that even have heard of the Reformed regulative principle, which is a very small group considering how large the church is around the world. And, and it tends to get its principles more from the old covenant, more from temple regulations, obviously with the elements being found in the New Testament. But then I was critical because they tend to slip in other practices that aren't exactly in the Bible. And I mentioned like, you know, somebody becomes a member and they come up front and they say their vows in the church, uh, they affirm their vows. That's not found in the New Testament anywhere. Um, you know, we, we have a, let's say you recite the confession, you know, Something like that is not found in the New Testament on worship. 
And, and the worship of the New Testament doesn't seem as formal as we often think it has to be. And so often we, we do have man-made things we bring in and, and then we, and, and that's fine because you have to have some man-made thing because we are on the earth. But then to say, well, we're allowed to do that in our regulative principle because that's a good and necessary consequence of certain principles. But then when evangelicals do the same thing, we say they violated the regulative principle. And so I, I've seen it in my circles become very elitist where we think we're the only ones that God accepts our worship because we follow all the rules. I think that's very dangerous. I think that isolates us from the greater church. I, to me, what's more important is that you really believe in worship, that Christ has brought you to God. Therefore, you don't need all those things you might think you need to connect us to God, that it's faith alone and the word of God alone is enough to strengthen us. And so the word, the truth of the gospel regulates worship. So really, and, and then I mentioned also, it's a great misuse, I believe, of that Old Testament story of Nadab and Abihu, um, that anyone who doesn't follow this regulative principle is in danger of being burned up in fire, you know, burned up by the Lord, killed. Often that's thrown out there in a very glib way, and it sort of drives me crazy. That's really not the point, that if you don't follow every law according to the way the reform do it, you're that you should expect that. That's that's a misuse of that. So I'm not I'm not critical of the principle of itself. I'm critical as how it's used in our circles. Because I think that all around the world, people from different cultures, if they really believe in Christ and they bring to God a heart of faith, then there's room for how exactly they worship that I don't believe that God would turn away because it doesn't match all of our what we think is, is allowed. Ospaldo, you want to add to that? Yeah, just just to re- re- kind of repeat what you said, I guess the criticism isn't on the regulative principle itself, but people's response, excessive response, I believe, to the normative principle, which states that, I mean, whatever isn't explicitly prohibited in scripture is allowed. And and once again, I mean, and obviously it's that, that are, this, this subject kind of overlaps on, on the subject of personal conviction and kind of like the church's freedom to, to include what is, what, like, to include certain elements that are not necessarily scriptural, but but can sometimes be be cultural. Um, one of the things that come into mind, I just find it interesting. I mean, collecting offering during a, a worship service is not exactly prescribed in scripture, but I mean, it's traditional. Baptist, Presbyterian churches, you collect it literally during the middle of worship. But that, I mean, is that wrong? Well, no, I believe that we kind of have that that freedom to to do so without uh, violating any any principles of um, the, 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 the scripture prescribes that are necessary for worship. But just to kind of, once again, um, kind of repeat what you said, I mean, this becomes, this subject becomes even more complex when we start including uh, different cultures. Um, I mean, I, I remember I used to be very critical of anyone who would raise their hands in worship because that, that isn't exactly scriptural. But then I started seeing like my own inconsistencies because in, like, I, like I said in our podcast, I mean, in Hispanic churches, it's super common to clap your hands. That's just the way the, the congregation participates in 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 worship and is that wrong well no i think that's just a greater expression of god's good promise and in including the gentiles and with that comes an inclusion of many cultures but all this to say i mean um i think the the criticism lies in people's excessive uh, response to the normative that really also affects what you often talk about on this podcast for the life of me at least scripturally i can't understand why a man would be allowed to stand up and read the scripture in worship, but a woman wouldn't. Because in heaven, if, if this is heavenly worship, 
why, why would it matter whether a man or a woman read the word of God out loud or prayed out loud? Now, if you're going to hold to only the ordained pastor should lead worship, okay, I get that. You're being consistent. But to allow men to pray and, and read and not women doesn't sound very heavenly to me. That sounds very man-made and cultural. Hmm. Now, you know, in different settings, you choose what's wise culturally, what shocks people and, and all those things. But trying to use the regulative principle to, I, I think, to sort of approve of your own biases, I think it, it's just wrong. And, and like Osvaldo said, but you won't have any problem taking up the offering, which isn't found in the New Testament as, as actually part of worship. Mm-hmm. And, so that, and then you've got a sort of a, a broad evangelical church that has special music. And then the Reformed criticize it. Well, that's not according to the regulative principle. Well, why not? You do certain things as a good and necessary consequence. Why, why is that not? Um, so the question would be more, what, what would take away from our heavenly worship? Does, a, does special music take our eyes off Christ and off faith? And, you know, is there an aspect of teaching to it? Who's supposed to teach in the worship service? Those questions are good questions, but they can be answered differently by different Christians. I don't think, I don't, I don't have a view of God that if you get one thing wrong, even though he's received you by faith alone, just as you are, and then he immediately turns you away if you don't worship him exactly right. I just don't think that's the God of scripture, especially when your heart is good and you want to worship because of what Christ has done. So I think there's some leeway there that we would do well to respect. You know, one of the things that I think uh, it comes down to is, you know, like what Espaldo was, it's, it's not the regulative itself, it's the application or um, what the purpose behind it. So if you think, you know, we're doing these things and we're the only who've gotten it, so then we're judging all other Christians based on how, whether or not they live the standard that we believe, or or even a sense that, well, if we can just get it absolutely right, then we will have done worship accepting. Just gets unnecessary, uh, can cause unnecessary the christian world to each other and how how we think of ourselves and um you know our relationship that's a great point so many things in what you guys have been talking about on your podcast and even todd you mentioned the um you know that any man can go up and read scripture he doesn't have to be an elder deacon or pastor but any man but no woman there's just, I think, some category errors, and we've talked about it in regards to that. But I think of so many things in our Facebook group. I have a list of things you are not allowed to post about because of how it tends to go. Um, Enneagram, yoga, I don't remember what else is on the list, but because there are such strong opinions. Um, I mean, it's some of the things out there where and I'm thinking right now about your most recent episode on, you know, personal convictions in the Holy Spirit, where, you know, a Christian would never read Harry Potter, these sorts of things that are set out there. A Christian would only homeschool their children, wouldn't watch this TV show, would only do this, you know, the list goes on and on. I'm sure you guys have heard some of these things. But on your recent episode on personal convictions and the Holy Spirit, why why do conservative Christians, why, why do they struggle with this? Why are they weak on understanding this? Yeah, we talked about on the podcast. So for one, people are very comfortable with rules because it makes them feel better. They don't have to think as much in sense of make decisions on their own according to their own convictions as much as they want to know whatever they're doing is biblical and that God approves. 
and they struggle when other people and other Christians do the opposite. They struggle with then feeling justified that what they're doing is right if so many um, they, uh, do the do what you think is wrong. Oh, let's just take Harry Potter for example. You know, you teach your kids they're not allowed to read Harry Potter or watch the movies, and then you have people at church talking about how much they love Harry Potter. And so our go-to instances is to look down on the people who are, in our minds, uh, flaunting their freedoms and not being very um, biblical or um, committed. But the loving way to do it is to simply say that the Holy Spirit leads each of us differently on how we use the world. And and not everything offends us the same way. And the, the, the biblical writers certainly were aware of the entertainment and the, the stories of the world. And so... We, we're, not, we're not comfortable with freedom. And we're always afraid that, you know, that great antinomian, that's the monster, that's always threatening to destroy everyone, even though the, the legalistic monsters usually chomping behind the scenes that we don't even recognize. Um, we're not comfortable with being around people with very different convictions. We have, it, it takes a lot of humility to be able to say, well, for me, that's, that's what I'll do. That's where I'm convicted, but that's okay if a lot of people in my church don't feel the same way. That's hard for us to do. We much we feel much better if everyone around us is affirming our conviction. And so there's an easy, I would even say a lazy go-to that makes us feel better about our choices instead of the Romans 14 way is to recognize that the Holy Spirit leads us in very different convictions in life in those matters that are not clearly commanded in the word. And so Christians are going to look very different on what they think and do and how they vote, etc. As Paulo? Yeah, I think it's a matter it's a matter of ignorance because a lot of people don't even categorize their own like they're not even aware that they have there is such thing as personal conviction. So when you don't even have that awareness of like that the culture that you that you live out, your Christian culture, um that that entails or that can be categorized as personal convictions, then you fall into the to the error that right the way I view life in the way I do things is synonymous with what is Christian life proper. So like those things become synonymous. Those things become the same. And they see that anything that is contrary to their Christian culture is actually an attack to uh, Christianity itself. So that that lack of distinction, or better said, that lack of awareness that a lot of what they do actually falls into the category of personal convictions. I think that's that's what makes it hard for a lot of conservative Christians. It's just that lack of awareness of what falls under personal convictions and what falls under genuine like Christian principles of, uh, well, this is right and this is wrong. So I, th- I think that's where the mistake is made. Thank you for that. That's It's very challenging for us to look at what we believe and why we may allegedly disagree with other Christians and still be Christian. And, and our disagreements may just be our disagreements, our own personal conviction. So glad about it. It is very freeing to be able to come to that point. You know, it's hard for a lot of us, especially those who have been raised in more rigid uh, church backgrounds or family backgrounds, that kind of freedom. Exactly. And I can only imagine like the Apostle Paul, who was like a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he mm. described himself, to be such an open guy. I wonder how much long that took. Because like, mm. obviously the Bible doesn't mention that, but I imagine there must have been some sort of culture shock, especially as the apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, I can only imagine someone who's never eaten pork sitting at a table with Gentiles for the first time and the meal is pork. I can only imagine the feelings that um, that, that just entailed that, that that experience. But I mean, once again, we see the beautiful growth that happened in him, the maturity that he had as he understood, understood the gospel, 
and its implication in this new age. And well, now he, he was able to say as in Romans 14, I believe that there is nothing unclean in and of itself. And I mm-hmm. think that is just an interesting journey you know, to kind of see imply throughout scripture. I have a really funny story about that because my dad was a convert from Orthodox Judaism. And so he was, um, he went to his pastor's house for dinner and my dad finished his dinner and he said, this is the best beef roast I have ever had. And the the pastor and his wife said, should we tell him now or later? And it was pork. But, um, you know, he, he just, he, wow. he understood this principle that he could eat, that he could eat pork. But growing up in Orthodox Judaism, that was the first time he had it. <laughs> Yeah, I'll never forget. I have a, a close friend who um, he's Turkish, but he grew up Muslim. And it wasn't until his um, junior year in high school that he converted to Christianity. But it wasn't until his like sophomore year in college that he actually tried a hot dog for the first time. And he said he felt so grossed out. He's like, I know it wasn't a sin, but I still felt like I had to tell God that I'm sorry. When I was uh, very young, we had actually we had four kids, so not too young. But the first church I candidated at, I was a senior at West, uh, last year at Westminster Seminary, and we went up to um, Ontario, Canada. And these sweet people were the most conservative people as far as they were King James only in their church. They uh, psalm singers only. I mean, very conservative reformed in that sense. And as we're sitting around talking, and I, I didn't, you know, obviously we didn't end up taking the call, but they asked me, why don't you have socialized medicine in the United States? And it seems so strange to them why we wouldn't go to socialized medicine. And I told them, do you know, in the United States, there are people, there are Christians who think that you're not good Christians at all for even saying that. They have so tied their political views to their Christianity that if you want socialized medicine, you're either not a Christian or a very suspect. And here the most conservative Christians politically were in many ways socialists. And so traveling and meeting other Christians around the world sure does open your eyes to what you assume are uh, biblical views that are really all about conviction and culture. We talked about that on our recent episode with um, a couple of ladies that live in the UK, where there's so many things that, and we've talked about this with the men and women stuff. Um, there's so many things that are such an American Christianity perspective. We have a, a gal in our group that's from the Ukraine, and she just said some of these things that you guys believe are really weird. Like she said, the idea of a stay-at-home mom is very foreign to us. You know, um, it, just a, a lot of things that are an American Christianity perspective, but they've made it very black and white as if um, this is the only acceptable way. You know that things have been very, there's a lot of contention between Christians in a, a lot of things right now. Political debates and, well, you know, one of the big ones um, that I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast, but we've even had um, more than I can count women that will try to post in the group, which we've never approved it, or write to one of the admins privately, and it goes something like this. Our church is requiring masks, and we disagree with that, and so do you think it's a reason to leave a church? But it also might be our church is not requiring masks. I mean, any any number of different things. And, you know, even COVID's become political and in the church. You know, how we you got some pastors saying it doesn't exist. And I mean, there's even 
pastors out there I've seen out there if you're if if your church isn't having service every week you leave that church you know even if maybe right now in your area because it's different in all areas they say you know we're not going to have events like that for a month or something like that um but one of the things I've in so many of these debates we see um there's a lot of I guess cultural Christians that really kind of think the church's job is to transform society to be Christian. And, you know, you got Doug Wilson up in Moscow, you've got Apologia down in Arizona, and they're very known for that. The The work of the church is abortion ministry. It is fighting against your um, horrible government that's making you wear a mask and things like that. It's one reason I love that first episode so much, because I think it really, you guys kind of showed the correct categories on how to think about the church and Christians and society and things like that. Can you talk about what is the purpose of the church? Where do we as Christians fit into society? Is the church supposed to be going in and fighting for certain politicians and making society Christian? Or how, how do we think about these things? Yeah, that really goes back to how you understand kingdom, because the church, or to quote the, the Westminster Confession, the visible church administered from the larger catechism, the kingdom of God. And so what is the kingdom that the visible church administers? Well, it's the kingdom of heaven. Remember what Jesus told Peter, you know, he spoke of the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He gives the apostles to open and close the door to heaven by their declaration of the gospel. And so what these other groups you mentioned, whether Wilson or what's going on in Phoenix, um, they, are, they hold to dominion theology, which is that the kingdom advances to influence and, and includes the things of this world. That, um, so it includes you know, culture, politics, education, and the kingdom becomes that which is also identified with this age and not exclusively with the age to come. And then the church's role then is to take dominion in bringing God's law and culture to all these endeavors, whether the law um, of the nations, etc. So that dominion theology is really the opposite of the purpose of the church that we see in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's very clear that the church will always be a minority. She will be persecuted. Her her ethics will be antithetical to the ethics of this world. Uh, and, and that includes whether, you know, 1776 America or 2021 America. Those were not the kingdom of heaven. Now, some countries and laws are better than others, of course, but the kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven that we admit. As soon as we develop a dominion theology, we profane the kingdom of God and we bring it down to this earthly level, which is defined by really whatever our politics and cultural preferences are that we want. And so it's really no different than liberal theology, which expands the kingdom of God to include helping the poor and um, liberating those who are political, uh, politically oppressed, you know, liberation theology. Liberals for years have sort of broadened the, the term kingdom to mean anything we do good in this world. And yet Paul tells us that the things of this world will pass away, but the things of God's kingdom will last forever. And so in society, we are good neighbors. We try to be um, helpful to people. We, we don't retreat into a, an enclave of only Christians. We're out in the world every day, working hard as good examples. But the kingdom of God we're trying to advance always 
has to do with people's relationship with God, coming to know him, being forgiven, walking with him, salvation and sanctification. And so, and that's, by the way, is the reason why people are attracted to these groups also, because as we just said before, they've developed their own family culture and they want to be around everyone else who agrees with them. And so in their minds, it makes life a lot easier to be around all kinds of people or people that will not public school their kids or people who will not watch certain things or people who all vote the same way. That gives us this comfort, but it's an earthly comfort. It's not a heavenly comfort where God accepts people of all different convictions into his family. And so actually the one of the earlier Reformed confession calls this Jewish dream to expand the kingdom to sort of take over the world and be identified with the cultures of this world. So we're part of this world. We try to do good. And um, at the same time, we realize that this world is passing away. And what we really should be focused on as Christians is that which is eternal. And I'll let us, I'll swallow expand on that. And one of the, the parables that really catches my attention is the parable of the sower. And especially when you when you start thinking that that's how Jesus compares his own messianic ministry. I mean, if there's anyone who had the, the proper grounding and the proper foundation and every right to exercise his messianic ministry to be a military one, where he captures the culture, where he, where he captures land, defeats the Romans. I mean, it was Christ who had every right and every proper grounding to do so. But instead, what he teaches us through the parable of the sower is that in this, in this side of the kingdom, in his inaugurated kingdom, it expands not through military means or by capturing the culture or, 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 or whatnot, um, but it is actually through the proclamation of the gospel. And that's how he describes his own messianic ministry. And that's exactly what you see played out um, in, in the apostolic ministry, that it is through the proclamation of the gospel that God's kingdom is expanded, not necessarily um, through, um, um, through social reforms and whatnot. That's not, that's not what you see. And I think that what, what catches people, I guess, aback is like, well, the Christians did not care about the poor. The Christians not care about the injustices that are done. But what we do care, but we properly distinguish between what is the church's mission or what is the, our definition of the kingdom versus a consequence of the kingdom. I mean, obviously, since um, being part of this kingdom, we are renewed and there is a new love that is instilled in us, a love towards our neighbor. So, Hence, a, our, our care for the poor, our care for those who are, um, who, who are in need. But we wouldn't say that that is um, strictly, um, this is expanding the kingdom. Instead, we would say, well, that's actually a consequence of um, the impact of the kingdom in our lives. So I just think that just like making those proper distinctions can probably help us out in our interaction society. Yeah, if I could bring it home to just an everyday example. Imagine if you have a neighbor and that neighbor is being abused. Should you do something to help her? Yes, we are to help the oppressed. And so you go and you help her in any way you can. And, and, And you do. And she's very thankful. But when you share the gospel with her, she's not interested. And so she still is going to stand before God. She's not saved. And if she doesn't believe in Christ, she will never get to heaven. We would not say then that the kingdom has come to her because she has not entered the kingdom of heaven. And you must be born again to enter the kingdom. But as Osvaldo said, the effects of the kingdom were seen in the fact that a Christian out of the love God has given him has helped somebody on the road, you know, like the Good Samaritan. But we distinguish that help with the kingdom itself. The kingdom was not expanded to that woman if she refuses the gospel. So we just have to have proper biblical definitions of what we're doing and why. And then what is the, 
role of the visible church. It's to expand through the gospel of the kingdom. What is the role of the individual Christian? You know, to be good neighbors and help people, even if it doesn't end up part of the kingdom, ultimately. Yeah, you guys, uh, I think I think it was you, Osvaldo, that said on, on that first episode, you guys were talking about kind of politics. So, you, so I am a Christian that happens to have been involved in politics, but not um, not in the way that I see a lot of Christians in their involvement. Like I've worked specifically primarily with non-Christian organizations because of the approach that I see from, from so many Christians. So, you know, I enjoy politics. I think some candidates are better for my district or my state or that sort of thing. And for these reasons, um, not because I think they're going to advance a Christian agenda, but I was thinking when I, when I grew up and I grew up in Southern California, they had this thing called the Christian yellow pages. And, you know, because we should, you shouldn't just find a plumber, you should find a Christian plumber. Um, and, and we should have Christian media and only Christian media and Christian music. And, um, you know, the list, list goes on and on. In, instead of understanding, I'm going to hire who I think is the best plumber. And, um, you know, maybe I'll even have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. It's just such a different way. And I think I, I've wondered, and I said this to Rachel, in my growing up, I grew up in very typical evangelicalism, grew up in the Evangelical Free Church, I actually grew up in a good church. And and I think there was, without um, maybe knowing what it was called, there was a very kind of transformational uh, way of looking at the church and society. And so then people become, they become reformed. And so they see this kind of Moscow, that sort of outlook, um, Christians and the culture wars. So they're attracted to that. So they're kind of staying within that same uh, way. Because I I said this on Twitter this week, so I can probably say it here, that we've seen in our group that someone will um, become, they'll join Theology Gals because they're new to Reformed theology, but then they're attracted to kind of the Doug Wilson apologia stuff, and then they'll leave Theology Gals. Um, Do you think there's a reason why people are so attracted to that? Yeah, because you've got two sort of sales pitches going on. One is come and find unity, which of course really means uniformity. Come and find people exactly like you, as we said before, that Nobody's going to challenge your views. Everyone's going to be alike, so you can find a safe, happy place. Which, again, uniformity is not biblical unity, but it's tempting. We don't have to deal with the Romans 14 issues that the church is supposed to deal with, um, with all these different convictions. And then secondly, there's a come and be blessed, which is a subtle legalism, which suggests if you order your family and your life the right way, then you'll be under God's blessing. And who doesn't want to be under God's blessing? And so the legalism, it's more than simply what the Bible says, which is believe in Christ, and you have all God's heavenly blessings are yours, Ephesians 1, 3. Now you have come and be part of a Christian culture, raising your kids a certain way, worshiping a certain way, and you'll be blessed. And so there's a running to culture and law to guarantee God's blessing which again is, is a challenge to the gospel properly understood. 
So there's come and be united and come and be blessed. That is the draw of these groups, which is why so many of them have people from other states come because they think that's that's what they that's the only place they can go to find me. So it's a it's a very dangerous draw. It's subtle because you have sincere Christians who want unity and they want to be blessed, and they're quite not mature enough yet in their understanding of the things of the Lord to know that this really isn't the gospel that's drawing them. And it takes them time, and some of them, over time, they realize it. And it's not just in those groups. Churches more and more in the conservative wing are becoming these little cultural enclaves that give the impression of the same thing. So it is a danger everywhere, really. Yeah, and it's funny, Colleen. My dad's a plumber, so I really need to tell him about that, uh, the Christian Yellow Pages, because I think business is about a boom. Um, no. Um, so uh, the reason I think the Minion Theology or, or those groups are super attractive is because, I mean, I mean, within us, there's always an excitement for the coming age, for the consummation of the kingdom. And, and everything that we're talking about, um, just capturing, you know, cr- Christian culture, some sort of Christian. And I, 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 obviously, the ideal for these, for these groups is that there should be ultimately some sort of uh, Christian, Christian state. Well, that falls under the category of the consummation of the kingdom. So essentially what you have there, it's an over-realized eschatology. Because, I mean, it's funny how you never hear early Christians talking about a, a Christian Rome. That was a very foreign thing to them. Um, th- there was no such thing as a, a Christian state Rome. Because they knew, well, there's going to be a coming kingdom. And one day Rome will, will leave, will completely be obliterated once um, the coming kingdom comes. But once again, they understood that to be part of the coming age, not part of this age. Um, and secondly... For me, it's just interesting. Whenever you read the epistles, Paul doesn't really um, talk much about um, um, about Christians' engagement with the culture unless it was explicitly sinful, right? Whatever is explicitly sinful, he he addresses, or whatever was was um, immediately affecting the church life, he um, he addresses. But otherwise, he he kind of summarizes Christians' interaction with culture with living quietly. And living quietly here doesn't mean like um, living, you know, shunned from society, meaning like you don't interact with society. On the contrary. Living quietly means no. You engage with culture normally. So if if I'm in this case, if I'm if I'm Mexican, um, I will engage with Mexican culture in a quiet way. Whatever is in the, whatever is not sinful, I, I will engage and and I'll live quietly and nice. Um, so I just think that's interesting how, how Paul summarizes, you know, um, how Christians should engage with culture. You know, live quietly. Whatever isn't sinful and whatever doesn't affect the church life in a bad way. I mean, go, go for it. Live quietly live quietly with the goal of being to spread the gospel, right? So yes. you yes. you live at peace with your neighbors. You can have a voice with them. Here is the hope that I'm Christ. Here's why my life. Absolutely. Yeah, the King, the Dominion theology makes the same mistakes that the Zealots did in Christ Day, which is to say there's only one king and any, there, there's no legitimate rule if they're, it's not according to the one king. And so they're always sort of in the face of our authorities, our scientists. Uh, there's always an antagonism uh, in these groups because they think that there's only one legitimate type of kingdom in this world at this time, or should be, and everyone, everything else needs to be toppled and challenged. But that's not the New Testament view. We live in the world. We live in this Babylon where our to seek its good, but it's always going to be Babylon. And God has called it to be Babylon for this time, just like he appointed Babylon over the Jews during their exile. And so we are to live peacefully. We are to uh, not live in antagonism, um, meddlers, always telling the world where they're wrong. We are to preach the gospel. Yes, we point out their sin needs to be repented of, but 
we don't approach the world with an antagonistic view. We approach it wanting them saved. I, Paul wrote, I become all things to all people that I may save some. That's how he used the culture, as Rachel just said, as an opportunity to share the gospel, not as a way to get my way of rule, um, etc. So it's a whole different view of how you look at the world in this age. Yeah, it really is. And I, if you want to hear more about these things, go listen to all of the podcast episodes. I told some of the girls in my group, since you guys are still new, was it five episodes you have? Yes. So far? Okay. It won't even be difficult to catch up. Um, but I highly recommend go back and start with the first one because I think that that first one kind of lays the foundation for the things that that you guys talk about on on the show. So we appreciate you joining us. Um, really appreciate the podcast. And is there anything you wanted to add before we sign off? No, I hope we didn't talk your year off. No, no, no I no. could I could have gone for another hour. No, it was. Mm. It was uh, perfect. So, okay. Well, we will see you all next week.